Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series, now the world's largest subscribed to and distributed weekly leadership podcast. My name is Scott Miller and I continue to be privileged and honored to be your host and weekly interviewer. This week we have a repeat guest who happens to be one of the five most popular guests by your downloads, your ratings, and your rankings. And she is the president of Franklin Covey's Enterprise Division, Jennifer Colosimo, and is one of the few people in mankind that had the privilege of co-authoring a book with our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Just over a decade ago, Jen and Stephen wrote the book, Great Work, Great Career. She's here today to talk to us from her home in Denver about all things sales, sales leadership, sales performance. And what does the sales force look like in the midst of a virtual business environment? Jen Colosimo, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. I am honored to be here. Great to see you, Jen. We're taping this at the end of October. I'm guessing snow has arrived to Denver. Is that true? That is true. Seven inches this weekend. Wow. Coming up or the past? Past. That's almost snowboarding weather. That's, that sounds pretty good. My boys would love that. Jen, you have been a colleague of the Franklin Covey Company for 25 years. You predate me. You were uh, uh, a friend and uh, you might say uh, tutored under Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Of course, our co-founder passed just shy of 10 years ago. You were privileged, honored to have co-written this book with him, although not our topic today. I'd love to start with what was it like to co-write a book with Stephen R. Covey? Well, as you might expect, um, a great learning experience, really focusing on the value that we added at different stages in our careers. My career was much younger and much less prestigious and continues to be much less uh, prestigious. Um, so learning a lot, uh, getting the advice, the coaching, honestly, and I think um, we've had many guests who've had the experience of working under his tutelage have found the same thing. He lived what he taught yeah. and that modeling more than anything else, I think, made a tremendous difference in my approach to leadership in my later career. So well said. I agree as well. My similar experience uh, you just illustrated. Jen, you've had an amazing career here at Franklin Covey. Originally, you were an associate at the Accenture organization. You took a brief sabbatical a few years ago and became the, the head of a learning organization. Came back uh, four or five years ago. You were one of our general managers, vice president, senior vice president. And recently, Jen, you have been promoted back to our executive team, of which you were a member prior to your short um, departure from us. And now you serve as the president of Franklin Covey's largest business unit. Really, you are responsible for the vast majority of associates that work at Franklin Covey. Nearly everybody in our uh, headquarters and their U.S. offices reports up through you. You lead all of our uh, sales and delivery team as well. You have been on both sides. You've been in a sales role. You've been in a professional development role, learning role. You've run some of our international operations. You were leading the consulting side for a while as well. So you have, like me, had your toes in a lot of different um, roles inside Franklin Covey. Now serving as the president of our sales and delivery force, I'd like to focus our discussion today kind of on all things sales, right? We're okay. taping this in October. We're seven to eight months into the pandemic with certainly some months ahead of us as well. We know this to be true that business hasn't changed much, but leadership, or perhaps, you no, know, business has changed a lot, but leadership hasn't changed as much as we all need it to. I'd like to start with a sales conversation. Kind of put on your sales leader hat. When you're okay. interviewing and recruiting, 
what you might consider to be a superb salesperson, frontline salesperson, right? Carrying your quota, prospecting, managing, implementing. What are the talents that you now look for when you're looking to hire a, a best of class salesperson? Thank you for the question, Scott. And I'm also going to draw on our clients and what they're looking for in salespeople. As you know, we offer uh, content around helping your sales force be more effective. So I've had exposure both here yeah. and to our clients. There's a couple things just overarching that stand out to me. Number one, are they curious? And that may sound silly, but if this isn't someone interviewing that hasn't been curious enough to find out about our organization, we're public, so you can find everything on the web or in a 10K, to find out about me and the interviewers, to link their previous experience to perhaps solving a, a challenge for us, a sales challenge or others, um, you can tell they won't be curious with clients. You need to have obviously product knowledge, solution knowledge with salespeople, but you need them to want to understand the industry into which they're selling, the social styles of the people that they're selling to. Um, so I'm looking for not just, hey, I've done all these things, you should hire me, but linking it to who we are as well. Um, curious, of course, results. Uh, how they think in terms of do they have a sales methodology that they uh, utilize or has it all been based on total relationship selling? Of course, relationships are critical, but a relationship also has to be helped by a process, by a methodology. So there's sales skills, but I also think curiosity, emotional intelligence, and the ability to link as a candidate who they are to what we do and how they could help serve our clients and in industry that's that's the case across all sales industries are they going to get the depth they need to really be able to link to what's important to the client jen sidebar when you get it right we score and our clients score when we get it wrong of course we don't uh, when you get it wrong and you do a bit of a post-mortem and say, gosh, I was convinced that he or she was going to knock it out of the park and they are not the right fit for the role. When you look back at it, what do you learn? One of the things I learned from um, an interaction I was lucky enough to have about a decade ago with Jack Welch is something that's helped me from a mindset standpoint anyway, which is he said, even the best hiring managers only get it right 80% of the time. And I think that's true whether you're an organization who does psychological or other kinds of assessments. Um, many will have psychiatrists or psychologists do interviews and do a bunch of assessments regardless of what you do. Um, or how a, a, a simulation, if you do a simulation, you still can only get it right because these are human beings and you're assessing versus seeing them on site or in the job doing what they do. So I give myself and I hope all all people do that you'll never get it 100% right. Past that and to your question, what do you learn? I have learned, frankly, when we do uh, a lot of group assessments and a very you know list-based, here's the things that we saw, here's what we heard. If one of those individuals or especially two of our large panels has a concern, that concern is going to show up. 
I haven't ever had the experience where someone has a concern and then six months later we're saying, oh, see, that wasn't a concern. It might be something that's overcomable and coachable and they come out as a success. But every single time that we have the unfortunate situation where it just isn't a match for one reason or another, I find we aren't surprised. Someone or some group, some part of the panel uh, saw that and brought it up. Well, it's good insight as our listeners and viewers are thinking about as they are interviewing for jobs. It's important to take seriously everybody sitting at the table because if you're in a panel interview, you might be playing to the CHRO or to the hiring manager, but you better make sure you're playing to everyone in the room. And I say playing, meaning that you're speaking to everyone in the room because when you leave, anybody's vote in that at that table might be as valuable as the next one. Well, I think that's critical, especially as we look to be very inclusive, um, diverse equity in candidates. I really think you need to have a diverse panel that interviews versus think just because I have this particular title that I am the expert and will know everything. You need to have different voices in the room. And again, many of the things that get pointed out it get pointed out because nobody's perfect might be coachable, might be overcomable, we have great success. But when there is a performance issue, I find you typically knew that was that was what somebody was worried about or several on the panel. Well, and to your point too, the, our unconscious biases kick in, right? On panel interviews yes. and it's important to make sure we have a broad you know, representation on the panel as well interviewing. Jen, pivot that conversation. Let's talk about sales leaders. You know, this is a age old issue in many organizations. You might say in most organizations, the natural path to becoming the sales leader is simply becoming the top individual sales producer. And we also know that that can sometimes work and oftentimes doesn't because what makes you a great salesperson rarely makes you a great sales leader. Has that been your experience or otherwise? And what are the characteristics you look for in a superb sales leader? As you mentioned, Scott, they have some similarities. If you're a strong sales performer, you had some strong sales methodology that you utilized. You probably had great process. It didn't happen by luck, particularly if you have a strong track record. So that sales component, particularly if you stay in the same industry or with the same solutions, that makes a difference leadership as we all know and i don't care if we're talking about sales or promotions within it or marketing or customer service what makes you a great individual contributor isn't necessarily what makes you a great leader there's this transition component where you now think about how is this work going to get achieved through others so in sales in particular one of the big watchouts is The best salesperson thinks, look, what I should do is go on these big calls and close all this business because we know I can. And they're not multiplying the genius of the rest of their salespeople. They're not coaching in a way that more all rise versus that they can sell it. So it, I mean, think about it, the leadership mindset, how you have one-on-ones, having the empathy internally that you likely have with your clients and that those listening skills, conflict resolution, and then the interactions that you may have differently with all of the support functions in your organization, operations and marketing and customer service and so on. You're simply called on to do different things. And these are all skills that can be taught, 
it just isn't, but it is in no way apparent just because you're awesome and spectacular at sales that you'll be awesome and spectacular at leadership without learning some specific differential things. And frankly, I have found some of the top salespeople are more fulfilled and feel more of their contribution staying in sales. Yeah. Yeah, it's great advice. Jen, you and I are both heavily steeped in Franklin Covey's content and solutions after both of us being here 25 years. I don't know if it was ironic or our listeners and viewers caught it, but in that answer, you actually shared the reason why you and I stay here, which is because like all organizations, we have our challenges, right? We have our cultural issues, but we really strive to live our own content. And you just shared the uh, first practice from the six critical practices of leading a team, which is to develop a leader's mindset, right? My job is to achieve results with and through other people. You also shared some of the insights from Liz Wiseman's Multipliers content, which now is in our All Access Pass around not being the genius, but being the genius maker. And mm -hmm. that really instructs the way you lead. Are there other aspects of Franklin Covey's content solutions, perhaps even from our sales performance practice where we help large sales forces, including our own, build on some of the leadership principles that we teach. What are some of the other leadership principles that you choose to integrate as a sales leader? Well, I think there's categories, Scott. And um, as you mentioned, I've said several times in this conversation, having a methodology. We, of course, have one that we work with clients to help them basically increase sales, drive, drive pipeline to better qualify opportunities, to better close, to better advocate for your solution. Um, we even, even say from being surprisingly average to strikingly different on the advocacy side. The part out of our methodology that I think has been so meaningful to me is just like with all Franklin Covey, starting with a mindset of creating a solution or offering a solution that exactly meets the client needs and then how you get to that, what questions you ask, what you need to know about the decision making process, how to slow down when there's a yellow light versus I think a less mature salespeople would say, uh, it seems I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking in my head they don't have the budget for this, but I'm surely not going to bring that up versus a skillful way to say, you know, I have a concern here. It sounds like what's allocated to achieve this isn't going to get the results that you want. I, I think our methodology is one that we practice. We've had many clients have great success with it around helping clients succeed and around advocating solutions. So when you go into that methodology column, um, well, of course, I think ours is best in class. When you go to social styles and social emotional intelligence, never forget that I don't care what you're selling, you need to be thinking about your audience. Is this a person who's driven by data? Is this a person who's driven by story? And how do you adapt and how do you listen? All of our social emotional skills that are taught in the seven habits of highly effective people our trust behaviors, and frankly, the executive presence that we teach through giving effective presentations and business acumen and how to really understand what a client's problem might be so that you can link your solution. We have a plethora. It really just depends on what component of sales sure. skills you're looking at. 
Sure, Jen, it's not an exaggeration to say your contribution has been significant in our company. You've been involved in some of the largest client implementations, both from the sales side and from the consulting side. Uh, you mentioned earlier you used to be one of the hosts of Franklin Covey's leadership symposiums, interviewing such luminaries as Stephen Covey and Jack Welch and others. And I think one of your biggest contributions that you might be surprised by is you have transformed the level of professional development that Franklin Covey invests in our employees. You often think of the cobbler's kids have no shoes, but at Franklin Covey, we actually do a pretty superb job of, of providing access to our employees for all of our content. You have transformed the way we onboard, train, and sustain the skills of our global sales team. I'm guessing that's been a little bit hijacked in the last seven to eight months because I work here at the corporate headquarters in Salt Lake, you home office out of Denver. You're here every couple of weeks or so, but I feel like every couple of days I see a different trove of salespeople, senior salespeople, mid-level salespeople, new salespeople coming in out of corporate headquarters being trained. There was a substantial investment the last several years into our sales force with live sales training. What have you done as the president of our sales force to keep that going in a virtual environment that perhaps some of our listeners and viewers can benefit from? Uh, thank you, Scott. And first, thank you for the, the compliment. I think like any leader that you would ever have that actually has people in their stewardship, I never feel like it's good. There's always something better to do. There's more you can do with culture. There's more you can do with sales enablement. There's more you can do with learning and development. So thank you for that. Um, I don't feel satisfied obviously. In terms of the switch to a, and, and by the way, there were so many people that helped. So I also feel a bit humbled by any of it being pointed to me. To your question, the virtual environment, um, we pivoted like many organizations where we were doing a significant amount of live training, both for our clients and internally um, to live online. Now we had a bit of a um, a benefit in that we had been doing live online training for about a decade. It just wasn't the way most clients or for some situations that we wanted to do things in terms of group le learning. Um, some of the things that we've done, of course, is maximizing tools and we aren't satisfied with the tools. We know um, that, that everyone's getting different tool exhaustion, but really maximizing the capability. Are you using breakout rooms? Are you doing space learning? Are you taking opportunities for team learning and coaching? You know, one of the big benefits we found, Scott, is we always have a yearly kickoff with our sales and delivery force. What we found this year, because it was being done virtually, is we had the ability to do even more specific learning tracks for different audiences because we didn't have the physical space of a hotel limitation. You know, we used to say that would be nice to do, but we don't have that many rooms, even though we've bought out the hotel. Well, now you have as many rooms as you want, as long as you're building in the interactivity or even sometimes during this breakout, please call this person's phone and walk while you have the conversation. Really looking at multimodality approaches to keep it going. And our clients are giving us NPS scores high, as high or higher than we were on live, while of course in some uh, economies and, and some industries needing to save those travel expenses, wanting to continue the initiatives but save the travel expenses, and we've found the same. Well, Jen, I think it's a great tribute to your point around the track 
that Franklin Covey had laid, like you said, for the last decade, because to your point, we have been one of the world's largest providers of live training, and our capacity to provide online training, blended learning, and digital tools was always there. Clients just weren't as prepared for it, but now our, our ability to thrive in this global right. change has been um, remarkably tied to, I think, your hard work and the hard work of others as well. Jen, let's talk a little bit about discipline. Uh, We've both been here for two plus decades. We know Franklin Covey is a very disciplined organization. Our chairman and CEO, Bob Whitman, uh, makes sure that that's instilled in all of us because we have a fiduciary responsibility to our employees, to our clients, to our shareholders, to our board. How would you describe that the discipline that exists in our sales force? What are the metrics, what are the lead and lag indicators as the president of our sales force that you expect? What do you watch? What has transformed our sales force into, I think, one of the most professional and disciplined in the industry? Well, it, you know, as your viewers, as our listeners are thinking about it, it is industry dependent to some extent. And what works best in one may not work in the other. And there is significant research on helping your clients succeed most successfully. Number one, how to fill a pipeline how to get new clients, which is a unique challenge in a virtual world where we're not attending live conferences, we don't have the same number of networking events. How do you get to clients who may benefit from your products or services? Obviously drive some measurements that I'll talk about. How do you progress that pipeline most effectively when you can't sit in a room and read the room the same way? And we all know on whatever virtual tool that you use, how you're looking at all the faces and trying to do what you can to read the room, but it's very, very different. And sometimes you're selling to a group that won't come off camera. The main person comes on camera and the other per the other group doesn't. And then how, of course, to close most effectively. And with any sales organization, we're looking at, of course, we want our clients to succeed. So how do we at least get our message that they have a choice whether to continue the conversation, choose not to have the conversation, or it might be better at a later time? And so we do measure how often our client partners are meeting with clients are uh, what we call face-to-face. -face. Those may be virtual face-to-face -face and most likely are right now. How pipeline progresses um, with the close ratios. We actually use our own four disciplines of execution system, 4DXOS, for what we called our wildly important goal. And that may be in the sales organization or other parts of our organization, looking at what behaviors each week can help, what commitments we can make to move that forward. We have a lot of fun scoreboarding. We ran an amazing race where each quarter had a different component and they were things we were already measuring. Like you said, we measure a lot of things um, as we look at how are we getting to our clients and, and helping them be more effective. But we would have an amazing race with fun scoreboards um, that were different each quarter. So there's, there's many, many things that we measure. And as part of execution, I'm sure all of the sales leaders are thinking, this is what I measure. But the one thing I would say, you can't just measure does revenue happen or not? You have to be doing something that helps drive that revenue that you can course correct versus getting to the end of the quarter and being, woo, that was a great quarter, or huh, that was horrible. Not sure why, right? That's why we measure to help people improve and adapt 
and ensuring that we have some things we can course correct during the course of a quarter and a year. Jen, uh, it's fair to say I know you well enough to say you are one of the most pragmatic humans I've ever met and you don't <laughs> suffer fools lightly. I'm guessing there is also some times where you feel like you're overmeasuring. Do you find that of the things you are measuring, face-to-face meetings, activity, pipeline, conversion, do you as the president ever say, you know what, we're gonna stop measuring that because we're measuring too much, we're fatiguing the sales force. What's that tension like in your office? Well, number one, I very much appreciate you saying I'm such one of those pragmatic people. I think that you should call Will, my husband, you know, and tell him that I am. Say, (laughs) you know, she's one of the most pragmatic people I know. I'm not sure everyone um, in this organization, I'm glad to hear that that is a reputation. I think one of the things that you need to make a distinction as a leader is what are we measuring for leadership scoreboards and what are we measuring that truly helps our sales force in terms of scoreboards? And what you're talking about is, is over measurement. Well, that depends on if what's the player's scoreboard that's truly helpful to them and helping them plan, helping them know where they are with each client and what's my next step and how do I have, you know, what do I do effectively versus what's measured at the leadership level, a leadership scoreboard. You know, you think about it, let's use um, a sports metaphor, baseball, all the measurements, football, basketball, golf, all the things you can find out about a player um really really helpful for betting purposes if you're a betting person or for adapting at the coaching level you may or may not be paying that much attention to it at the player level you're looking at a different scoreboard so i think the question is kind of a false dichotomy because i can measure everything i want or that the company needs or that would be helpful for shareholders to know or um, different operations different performance improvement groups What do we actually ask salespeople to focus on is a different question. And of course, that needs to be limited to what helps them be most effective with their clients and get the results they need for themselves. Such a superb insight. What I'm taking from that is, is you may measure more things than the client partners that salespeople even know about because there's a player's scoreboard and there's a coach's scoreboard and you don't drag the players necessarily into the coach's scoreboard all the time. Jen, you mentioned earlier, you talked about selling in a virtual environment. We know all the downsides. What are the upsides? Are there any upsides for a salesperson and perhaps the client in a virtual environment? What have you seen as perhaps some unintended silver linings in the last seven months uh, during the pandemic? Well, I really appreciate the positive spin because there are some. And let's acknowledge, Scott, all of us would prefer to have at least some mix. (laughs) We're all hopeful that one day there's at least some mix, even if much of our work maintains virtual, regardless of the industry or function that you're in. Some of us would like a mix. Um, uh, We have a a colleague, you and I, that says, well, some of the introverts think this is the best thing that's ever happened to them. (laughs) In terms of um, silver linings as it relates to the virtual environment in sales, number one, Um, for many, many, whether that's clients or whether that's the salespeople, they um, have cut down significantly on travel costs. Sometimes to make a decision, you needed to bring in a team that was all over either this country or multiple countries, and you wanted everyone there to make the decision. 
um, we found that's not necessarily always got to be the case. It's, I think, created more flexibility in working arrangements. Again, noting full well, all of us would like to be able to do some things face-to-face. But there's travel expenses. There's flexibility. Um, It's actually a good way to model how for what we do, which is create behavior change in organizations, enable behavior change at a large scale in organizations, how that can be done because you can model that through the selling process. Even very large, complex selling processes can be done virtually, which models that, of course, we can deliver on our um, promise for behavior change virtually as well. Jen, pivot that question to sales leadership. When you think about leading a sales force in a virtual environment, we think about things about connection and engagement and inspiration and esprit de corps. Perhaps speak to all of those who are listening and watching today that perhaps are sales leader, their leaders, their executive leaders. Any insights or things that you see happening at Franklin Covey, any things that you've pivoted to or learned where you're helping to build better connection so that people feel engaged that they're giving their the best, themselves the best. Any tips for sales leaders that you'd offer? Scott, I think this applies really to any leader um, in a virtual environment. The, the human being in a room with you is simply a differential connection. Um, I have known you for many, many years, and we're having what I hope is a great conversation, at least on your end, And yet it would have been wonderful to actually see your face and interact with you because you feel humans differentially in that energy between them. So you are really, if you didn't have it already, needing to recognize um, the value of slowing down. I would say truly the key currency right now in interacting is empathy true empathy and and i know we're missing the the in the same space but looking at people's eyes looking for body language slowing down and at least in this particular point in time recognizing things might be a lot harder with your salespeople. they may be homeschooling they may be worried about bandwidth they may be uh they may actually have health challenges that have come their way for themselves or their family and Of course, as leaders, I'm hoping we were all thinking about that. But now there's this extra component where a differential effort needs to be made because we are not in the same space. And so um, taking time for one-on-one conversations and checking in, I'm not advocating you become the therapist. Um, We recently had an article in our micro learning called How to Be Most Empathic Without Becoming a therapist becoming your employee's therapist, um, but but that we are checking in, we're seeing how people are doing, and then we are creating opportunities for engagement. Some of the things we've done is think of open office hours. You would sit in your office and people would walk by, and if you weren't on a call, they'd stop. Um, opening a Zoom room. And sure, you can keep doing your work, but if somebody pops up, different people might pop up and basically stand outside waiting, but having open Zoom rooms, having opportunity for connection, um, small group connection. It might be over learning something or improving something, or it might just be connection. 
Um, we've been opening up many of our meetings with something interesting about an individual or even in large group meetings, having a chat question. Um, you know, which holidays do you celebrate in your family between October and January? And that opened up um, a great conversation, an inclusive conversation about different holidays. I think it's just continually looking for creating the connection, having empathy, checking in on people differentially, and recognizing that you can keep your culture alive virtually, but you are working in a mediated environment and adapting to that. Jennifer Colosimo, it's no accident as to why you became the president of our firm. Your uh, life lessons, your professional lessons, your knowledge and intimacy with all of our solutions has been well articulated today. I appreciate your time. I know that you'll be working with clients again sometime face-to-face, -face, hopefully next year. We're honored that you joined us today. I expect uh, a few books will probably come out in the coming years, and perhaps your name might be on one of them. Stand by, not a spoiler alert. Jen, thanks for your time today. <laughs> Say hi to your husband, and I'll send him a text about just how pragmatic you are, in fact. <laughs> he needs it, Scott. Saying to your family, thank you so much. Thank you, Jen, and thank you for joining us today. Man, what a great conversation. What I love about Franklin Covey is that of all of our challenges, like every organization has, we generally try to live the same principles that we teach our clients. We'd love to have you visit us at franklincovey.com. Learn more about Franklin Covey's All Access Pass. And if you're not already subscribed to the On Leadership newsletter, you can do so at our website. Click on it and invite all of your family, friends, and colleagues to do so. It comes out every Tuesday via email in the newsletter. And you can also access it on every podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week with a new guest on leadership. Mm -hmm.